The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Let me pray one more time. God, we ask for your word to do your work in the hearts of your people. We thank you for the confidence that we will hear from it today. Amen. So, uncomfortable is the only way to describe the experience. I've been in various supervisory roles, and I've been instructed to give out uncomfortable messages, uh, like having to give a message on a Friday afternoon with a letter on my desk to an individual, and then I have to explain to them why the decision was made to let them go from the organization. In that moment, I become the face of the organization, I receive all of the pushback, the blame, the anger. In that moment, often, there is crying. And it is very difficult to not to be able to comfort somebody in that moment. According to many experts, this is the most uncomfortable thing we ask leaders to do, to deliver a message like that. It's uncomfortable because we know that it's going to have a traumatic effect on its listener. It's an emotionally difficult task even if it is for the better, and many of us have been in that situation. I start this way to show that sometimes we are given instructions to give a message that can cause us great discomfort. Sometimes, in response to those instructions, we either ignore them, delay them, or produce some sort of watered-down version to justify completing it. To be honest, I can do this when it comes to sharing my faith especially in the workplace or with my relatives. Around this time of the year, I pray for opportunities to share my faith at holiday gatherings, and when the time comes, I lose my confidence and talk about football instead. I wonder if anybody has experienced this last week with Thanksgiving. Oftentimes, I try to justify it by saying, well, I don't need to say anything. I will demonstrate it with my life or my work ethic. And that is good and true, but it is not enough. The truth is, God has explicitly instructed us to share our faith and to make disciples of the nations. The Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew demonstrates this, as well as the book of Acts with Jesus' first disciples. We're supposed to do this to our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, all the way to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to look at what it means to proclaim the gospel correctly, because when we do this, the gospel becomes the true reality of comfort to God's people. And when we do this, it gives us the ability to do it confidently. We're going to look at two points. First, because the gospel is the true reality of comfort, we must therefore proclaim it correctly. And second, because the gospel is the true reality of comfort, we must proclaim it confidently. If you've been following with Uh, Our Isaiah series, The True Reality, Um, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah have primarily dealt with the need for salvation and judgment. God is asking his people, who are you going to trust, yourself for your salvation or God? Chapter 40 marks a dramatic shift from the need for salvation to how God is going to provide that salvation. Last week, Pastor Chad preached on Isaiah 39 and the true reality of security. And we saw that King Hezekiah set himself up in alliance with Babylon 
bragging about his own self-security on his material possessions. Isaiah immediately pronounced a judgment on Jerusalem that nothing would be left, all would be taken to Babylon. This is the background to Isaiah 40. Isaiah is going to deliver a prophecy almost a hundred years in the future to a people that will be in exile. This is going to be a group of people that are losing hope. This is going to be a group of people that are actually blaming God for their situation. But instead of immediately condemning them, God delivers a message of comfort. With that as our context, let's look at our first point. The gospel is the true reality of comfort, therefore we must proclaim it correctly. So what is this message of comfort that we must get correct? Well, first it's going to be the pardoning of sin. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. sins. Sorry, The message is proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, total forgiveness of sins, even the ones we're unaware of, past, present, future, all gone. The expression double for all her sin means that it has been covered beyond comprehension. The second thing we have to get correct about this message of comfort is that it is a gift from God. Again, the second half of verse 2 says that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This means that it is a gift from God, nothing that we earned, not something we deserve. It is purely by grace alone. Recall Isaiah is actually writing to a people that are in exile who are actually blaming God for their predicament. And this message of comfort is out of grace that God is going to forgive the sins of his rebel children. The third thing we need to get correct about this message is that it is through repentance. If you look at verses 3 and 4, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. This is a poetic description on how the heart is going to receive this comforting message of grace. It's a picture of a road being made for a king. And in those times, a herald would go before the king and announce the coming of the king, and then a highway would be built, um, knocking down mountains, lifting up valleys. It was to make sure that the path and the road was smooth so that there would be nothing that would delay the arrival of the king. It'd be similar to kind of how the railroads were built in America, blowing holes in the middle of mountains so trains could tunnel through them or building massive bridges or viaducts to cross really deep valleys. It's a poetic way of saying that nothing is going to prohibit this king's arrival into the hearts of his people. Mountaintop high pride or valley low shame is not going to prohibit this king from coming. But that's going to require repentance. Repenting of the things that brought you the shame or repenting of your mountain high pride. Because in those moments we're acting like we are the king, usurping the true a king's authority. The New Testament brings clarity to verses 3 and 4. All four Gospels quote this passage as a message describing the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing the way for King Jesus. When quoting this passage, the Gospels say that John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance. So saints, 
That is the correct message that brings comfort to those that are in exile of this world. The total forgiveness of sins by grace alone through repentance. Sadly, we sinners naturally want to fight against this message. We want to claim some part of our salvation. But the Bible is clear on this. We must proclaim this message correctly because any other gospel is no gospel. And it cannot bring salvation. There are many who attempt to make the gospel more comfortable by adding things to it or taking things away from it. That doesn't make the gospel more comfortable. It actually makes it more deadly. We can be tempted to do this because we don't want to offend somebody about their sin or be labeled something by our society. But that's not the gospel, and that was not the message we were instructed to give out. So this is the only correct message that brings eternal salvation, and because of its source, which is the word of God, which abides forever. Any other man-made message will perish. The Holy Spirit illustrates this in the next set of verses, 6 through 8. It says, A voice says, Cry. And I say, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is an illustration of God's word in comparison to man and man's means of salvation through false messages or false idols. God's word will remain eternal and unchanging throughout time because of its source, God, which is unchanging and eternal throughout time. First Peter quotes this passage and illustrates the deeper meaning that is behind it. It's not only illustrating man's frailty compared to God's word, but it's actually showing the cure to man's frailty. God's word has an eternal impact on those that hear it and accept this message of salvation. Peter quotes this passage stating that you have been born again with imperishable seed by the living and abiding word of God, the gospel that was preached to you. Peter is saying that those who have this imperishable seed are not like the flowers they put in the median out here in front of Heritage Hill. Those are not there today. But they're flowers that are planted in God's garden, in a kingdom that has no end. And those flowers will give off a beautiful fragrance for eternity, and their colors will never, ever fade. So before going to our next point, the last thing we need to get correct about this message of salvation is, who is it for? Well, verse 1 calls, or actually verse 2 says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. But we know that Isaiah is actually not preaching a message to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out. Babylon's going to make Jerusalem a parking lot. And the message that Isaiah is delivering is to a people that are going to be in exile, that don't have a Jerusalem. He's calling a people Jerusalem when there is no Jerusalem, serving as a synonym for the people of God. We, we'll pick that up in verse 9, as he calls the people of God Zion and Jerusalem again, but... In verse 5, it says that the glory of the Lord will be revealed for all flesh to see together. It's a statement that the gospel is going to be given access to all people, all nations, not just particular people. This may bring an image in your mind, the glory of the Lord being revealed, the full glory of the Lord being revealed. Um, 
maybe it may bring the mind uh, bring to mind the story of Moses in the Exodus, where in uh, chapter thirty three he asked to see God's glory, and God says, "No, I can I, I cannot show you my full glory because it would kill you." Verse seventeen calls Moses. Uh, actually, God says he knew Moses by name, meaning that Moses was a super saint or God was on a first name basis with Moses. But in verse 5, it says there's coming a time when God is actually going to reveal his full glory, his face, not just his passing glory, when he, paced, when he placed Moses in the cleft of the rock and walked by. This means that this isn't a message just for super saints like Moses. This is a message for all saints. Amen. This gospel is going to be for all people. In fact, the book of Isaiah later says that it was too light of a thing for God to only save one group of people, that he's going to be saving the nations. So we cannot withhold this message to only people that we're comfortable with. We have to share this with people like our friends, family, neighbors, even our enemies, because there is no restriction on who God is saving. So a quick recap. Before we move to our second point, the message of comfort is the good news that God is coming to bring total salvation, the forgiveness of sins through grace alone, and that is through repentance for all people. Now that we've seen that the gospel is the true reality of comfort and that it must be proclaimed correctly, let's look at our second point. Because the gospel is the true reality of comfort, we must proclaim it confidently. Look at verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. uh, These are instructions given to the people of God, calling them Zion and Jerusalem, and telling them to go tell it on the mountain. Again, this is a poetic form of telling it everywhere, not literally. Um, It's to herald the good news. Twice it calls this message of comfort the good news, which is literally the gospel, which is what that is translated. So that what this means is that we are to proclaim the gospel, the good news. I don't know if you've noticed the progression in the messengers throughout this passage. Verse 1 says, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. It's a plural imperative, meaning that God is instructing his messengers around him to go give out the message, the gospel. Verse 3 says, a voice cries. Verse 6 says, a voice cries. But in verse 9 through 11, we find out that we're that voice that is to cry out. We are the messengers that are going to proclaim the good news, the heralds of the good news. And we're to lift it up and not fear. Why? Because of our king, behold, your God. Verses 10 and 11 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is our king, a great king and a gentle king that's going to deliver his people from their sins. He's going to conquer sin and death, and he's going to have a military campaign upon his return, a procession, like a parade, but not, not a pretty one. Pretty in some sense, but not pretty to, 
to others. So uh, again, this is an illustration describing a military victory. And in those times, when you would conquer another country and come back to your home country, there would be a procession going before you. And then that procession would be the treasures. You would have jewels, emeralds, rubies. You would have the fruits, the flowers. You would have all these treasures being brought back. But also in that procession, there would be the prisoners, the slaves, the captives. Some would have a beautiful smell and others would not. This is our New Testament reading that Paul says that we are in that triumphal procession, spreading the fragrance of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. To some, a fragrance of life, and to others, a fragrance of death. But here comes the twist. This warrior king that is returning from the conquest is a gentle shepherd, gentle by carrying his sheep close to his chest, gently leading a procession of fragile or delicate people like children or nursing mothers. Saints, the true reality of comfort is going to come in the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah 40. But guess what? I have good news. This passage has been fulfilled. Jesus is the good shepherd in John chapter 10, who knows his sheep and lays down his life. He is the eternal word of God that put on flesh. His death is what paid double for our sins and pardoned us before God. How do we know this? Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the passages where we know this. All four Gospels quote Isaiah 40 as a message of one proclaiming repentance in the wilderness was John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. But if you looked closely at verse 3, you notice that the word Lord is all caps, which is God's covenant name, Yahweh. And a little bit further down in verse 3, it says, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 40 is saying that God himself is coming to deliver his people, but all four Gospels quote Jesus as the one coming to save his people. All four Gospels are in that moment saying that Jesus is God. That is the correct message and brings comfort. Why? Because anything less would not pardon your sins. You cannot pardon your sins. I can't pardon your sins. We've incurred an offense against God, an infinite and holy God, and it can only require a payment of equal status. But good news, Jesus is God, so he can make that infinite payment on our behalf. That's why verse 2 says, your warfare has ended. The war between you and God has ceased. Your sins have been erased and replaced with a comfort unlike any other, a true reality of comfort. That is the message that will bring comfort to the exiles of this world. We rebel children don't deserve this salvation, but by God's grace, our sins have been forgiven through Jesus. Which leads us to now, how can we do this confidently? I'm going to move backwards through the passage real quick. There's actually four ways we can confidently give out this message. First, we can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because it's already occurred. Verses 9 through 11. The king has arrived. We celebrate it around this time of the year at the incarnation. There's your opportunity. This was fulfilled with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're not proclaiming something that hasn't happened. We're proclaiming something that has happened. Second, we can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because it's the only correct message of comfort. 
verses 6 through 8. We saw that the gospel is eternal and consistent. Every other so-called false gospel will wither and fade. But not this one. We don't have to come up with a new message. Just use this message. And you don't have to worry about the fear of rejection. It's not you that they're rejecting or your message. It's God and his message. Third, we can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because the Holy Spirit equips you and speaks through you. Remember, we were looking at the progression of the messengers, and we said, you know, verse 3 was a messenger, verse 6 was a messenger, verse 9, we're those messengers. But if you looked at verses 3 and 4 again, we said that, or verses 3 through 5 again, we said that John the Baptist was that voice in the wilderness, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths. But if you look at verse 5, it says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So which is it? Is it John the Baptist being the messenger in the wilderness, or is it God who is speaking? And the answer is both. In Mark 13, 11, Jesus says, When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because of the Holy Spirit that is within, within you, and it will speak through you. Last thing, moving all the way back to verse 1. We can have confidence to proclaim the gospel because the foundation in which the gospel is placed in. If you looked at verse 1, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That expression, my people, your God, would immediately ring the bell in the hearers of that day of their covenant relationship back with God. It would remind them that they were God's people. It would be similar to our expression in this country, we the people, or four scores in seven years. Those phrases bring to mind a time and place where a declaration was made about a group of people. Similarly, the expression, I will be your God and you shall be my people, would bring to mind a time and place where God made a declaration about a group of people. To put it into context, Isaiah just delivered a message of destruction three sentences before verse 1. And God starts by reminding him that he keeps his promises. He promised to be their God. So saints, we can confidently proclaim the gospel because God keeps his promises. Just look at the cross. God will accomplish his work through his spirit, through his word. And you can confidently proclaim the gospel because it's God who's doing the work. You're the instrument. I started with a story at the beginning explaining some uncomfortable situations in which I was instructed to give out a message. I just want to make the point clear that the message that we are proclaiming itself is not uncomfortable. It's actually the true reality of comfort. It's a message that brought salvation to you and to others. Let me end with this. Um, in World War I, there was a group of British soldiers called trench runners, and their job was to deliver a message from those in charge to the front lines. There's a movie about this. I haven't seen it. It's called like 1917. But um, communication through technology was unreliable. Oftentimes, the communication lines were cut, intercepted, decoded by the enemy. So the best and most reliable form of communication came from person to person. 
Trench runners were usually 18 to 20-year-olds, physically fit, able to read maps, memorize messages, and resilient in all weather. They were sent out in pairs because of the high risk of death and because of the importance of the message to get across to the people. This was World War I, the War of Trenches. So trench runners would become vulnerable by climbing out of the trenches and having to run across no man's land to deliver messages. It was the most important attribute was their determination. One veteran described the job as merely a question of how long it would, you would last before being wounded or killed. The trench runners were common people with ordinary backgrounds, with lower rank positions, and yet they were the greatest unsung heroes of World War I. Saints, you have been placed in God's church and given instructions to deliver a message, a life-saving message. It is the same life-saving message that you received and brought you eternal comfort. You do not have to be a super saint, the son of a theologian, or have a prestigious background, or have a high rank. This isn't a message for super saints. This is a message for all saints to give out. And when you proclaim the gospel, you are the face of the church in that moment, delivering that life-saving message. So, go, tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. Go, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that it has done your work in the hearts of your people. Thank you for the comfort that we have received in this great salvation through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins by grace alone. Thank you for giving us the confidence to proclaim this message of salvation, the true reality of comfort to the world. Amen.